You're listening to The Patchwork Girl and Friends. I'm Kendra, and I love having interesting conversations with my friends about art, media, life, the universe, and everything. And that is what this podcast is all about. Uh, This is going to be fun because I am with my friend James. Hey, thanks for having me. And we're going to be covering the Who's concept album, Tommy, and possibly getting into the movie, which I have seen. And James, you have seen a stage production? Yeah, um, I actually saw a local high school's production of it um, back when I was in high school, and it was really interesting, um, kind of as a spur of the moment, a couple of friends of mine were planning on going and they just sent me a text and asked me if I wanted to go. I had never heard of Tommy before that, um, but I decided to go just for fun and it was really cool. That's interesting. I've never heard of that one being done at a high school before. That's a unique choice. Yeah, I kind of feel bad for the high school students to have to play something so musically complex just because it's very outside of the norm for everybody. Yeah, for sure. They did a great job. Now, you are more familiar with this album than I am. I've just listened to it a couple times. and Well, first I wanted to say, I, I was listening to it recently, and I started laughing because do, do you think 21 is going to be a good year? Uh, yeah, um, I thought about that song, too, on New Year's, Eve, <laughs> New Year's Eve, and I was just like, <laughs> I hope it comes true. <laughs> I told my dad, and he go, it took him a minute, and he goes, oh, yeah, on the album, it's 21. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I think in the, in the movie, movie it's 51. It's 51 because they changed the time. Anyway, could you give us a little bit of background about the album Tommy? Yeah, so basically it's the story of a boy named Tommy who um, whose father was lost, in the album at least, in World War One, and is expected not to come back. And so his mother kind of gets together with this other man and um, his father, Captain Walker, magically sort of appears out of the blue a couple of years later and in in the album it's not really clear exactly what happens um as to who uh, is killing who but either father uh, captain walker is killing this like new lover or the lover is killing captain walker personally i like um captain walker to win out because i think it just makes for a little bit better of a story but um the young like three or four year old tommy sees this murder take place and his parents are kind of telling him you didn't see anything never tell anybody you didn't hear it, nothing. And so um, he's kind of traumatized and retreats into his own mind kind of and doesn't speak or really seem to interact with his environment at all. What's fascinating about the album is it's all sung by the same person. Who who sings on the album? Uh, it's primarily Roger Daltrey. Um, okay. He plays the role of Tommy, but some of the, like, uh, the cousins and the uncle are played by Pete Townshend, the guitarist. Um, and so it's kind of a nice mm. back and forth. So you can really kind of tell who's who based off the voice. And then, of course, in like stage productions or the movie, then they add mm-hmm. like female voices for it, it was really interesting to listen to the album and then watch the movie and see what lyrics they gave which characters. Because yeah. I feel like just based off of that choice, you can change bits of the story. Mm-hmm. Uh, In the album, the original LP release, they have sort of a little libretto and a lyric sheet, and it's just kind of very lightly marked as to who does what. And so you're kind of left to yourself to kind of make up your own story, Um, where I think the movie and the the musical production are a lot lot clearer what's happening 
And so you know, there's less room for, I guess, creative license. Yeah. So that brings me to, I want to know about the stage production you saw. Yeah, it was really interesting. Like I said, it was sort of off the cuff decision to go. Um, when I first heard that there was like Tommy by the Who being produced by the local high school, I kind of thought it was going to be something like Mamma Mia, where it was just influenced by music, like what was done mm, with ABBA music. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, you know, I'm not really that interested in seeing something that's sort of just a take on music. Um, but I just looked it up really quickly and I was like, oh, okay, this is something that the Who intended to release. And so I went and I, we sat down in the row, just the three of us, and we heard the band warming up. And I was like, okay, there's some French horn and multiple guitars. So this is a little bit different maybe than I was expecting. And then, you know, the curtain drops and you just hear these opening chords and it was just a captivating moment for me. Yeah, it was just an amazing moment really just to hear that and immediately like be drawn into this story. So often I was used to rock music being more like a lowbrow sort of thing. And all of a sudden there's mm. this huge story, a big production, very cohesive. Yeah, kind of perspective altering in a way. I like that sort of rock. That mm -hmm. That's my dad's favorite kind of music. So that influenced me a lot. But I, I like when there's orchestral music in yeah. rock music. It's really interesting because um, I'd heard other sort of attempts for orchestration in rock music, you know, like Sgt. Pepper's Only Hearts Club Band from the Beatles or Pet mm -hmm. Sounds by the Beach Boys. And, you know, I really found them really interesting, but it wasn't so immediately captivating. Like the first time mm -hmm. I, I heard The Who, it's just immediately like all my attention's just drawn in and I'm bound into the story in a way. Well, and it's pretty immersive because it has that entire overture. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is. And that's an overtake or an undertaking of its own really to encapsulate an entire work, I guess. It's not really even an album. It's more of a, a work. Everything mm -hmm. kind of set the stage in a sense for everything that's going to happen in a musical way. Mm -hmm. Because, yeah, they follow that musical trend of having the different themes mm -hmm. come in and out, which I, I always think is cool. I mean, when I was a kid, I hated the overture because it's yeah. like, oh, can we just get it but now it's like, oh, this is what we will be hearing. That's interesting. Yeah. It, you know, I felt the same way a lot of times with long instrumental only sections of music because it's like five or six minutes long and you're like, I just want to hear singing for whatever reason. Like as a kid, you just you want to <laughs> yeah. hear singing. Um, but I've come to really appreciate the overture and the underture as really being the heart of the album in a way. So in the stage production you saw, I already mentioned that in the movie, they changed the timeline. So the movie was made in 1975 mm -hmm. and they create the timeline. So Captain Walker is lost during probably World War II. Mm -hmm. And then by the time, so then it, it just goes up. So it almost brushes the 70s, for sure the 60s. Yeah. I don't know. It kind of makes sense for the movie and what they were doing, but I want to know some specific things about the production because it's with the album, it's so open-ended about what you could do visually. So what, what time era did they kind of have there? Uh, they didn't really clarify it. And I think that's really interesting um, because mm. it brings it into the modern era. There's not really any sort of synchronicity. So you're not thinking, oh, this is my grandparents' generation. This is my parents' generation. It's my generation or anything. It's just this unit of time kind of independent of any sort of connecting. 
yeah they had the the cast kind of dressed up in colors based off of their character role rather than like a timepiece sort of thing so again it was more conceptual um out of time oh that's cool especially with the whole theme of blindness Mm -hmm. being part of the the story to have color be that that makes me that's cool yeah that makes me happy i really liked that and then I, I also wanted to ask how they did the song. I'm I'm forgetting the name of it. Um, it's the one about like my girl. Oh yeah, the hawker. I said for the blind. Um, yeah. How did they do that? They had the acid queen sing it. I think, which was kind of an interesting. Whoa. Uh, kind of segue into the next song. Um, but that's a very challenging song to sing, mm-hmm. and so it took a lot of gusto. But they went for it. They just they didn't edit it in any way. They didn't transpose it as far as I remember. I guess they did a really good job of just staying true to the material and going for it. Oh, that's interesting. That was a weird part in the movie. They're basically in this church that worships Marilyn Monroe. Oh, really? So visual, it was really interesting because they have this huge statue of Marilyn that these priests are carrying down the aisle and there's all these disabled people mm. around like touching it and and all the priests I'll say they're wearing masks that look like Mira. It was just an interest it was weird. Very 70s yeah. weirdness stuff. But it was like, huh, that's really interesting from the lyrics. What would you do with that song? I think it's a really interesting song as well because it's actually the only song on the album that wasn't written by Pete Townshend. It was a. I did not know. Yeah, that. it was a blues song previously, but it fits. I mean, thematically perfectly. I think they kind of modulated it a little bit to kind of fit into both the style of the album and their own sort of band structure. I, I think it might have even had completely new music, but the lyrics are from a a song that was released earlier in the fifties. I think. Oh, that's interesting. So you had never heard the album when you saw. I hadn't this production. Yeah, I was going coming in completely blind. Do you remember any particular song or any particular moment that really stuck with you? Really, I think it's Tommy's theme. That's always been my favorite mm. song. Um, it's the see me, mm. feel me, heal me sort of thing. It's just so mm-hmm. vulnerable because there's not really any instrumentation. Um, and it's counterpointed, at least in the album, by Pete Townshend saying, Tommy, can you hear me? Very, very, you know, heartfelt. You know, it's like, I think he's playing the mother at that point, And he's just like, Tommy, can you hear me? Mm-hmm. From his heart. And it's very vulnerable. Um, there's only just a little bit of a kind of a bass uh, lick and drum lick that comes along in part of it. But it's just very gripping. What do you think of Tommy as just a music album? Like without the show or anything, just as the album, what do you, what do you think? It's quite an undertaking because most rock albums today for pop in general and back then as well are just sort of 10 to 14 loosely related music. Sometimes they're not even related at all. They're just kind of just a collection of things that had been written at the same time. But this was, you know, a concerted musical effort with one idea in one kind of movement along the entirety. And so very complicated. Um, The Who have an interesting band structure because the drums are not the rhythmic heart of the song. It's actually Pete Townshend's guitar playing. And so when you listen to it, you'll actually kind of find yourself being driven by a different aspect. You know, he's playing very, very um, emphatic quarter and eighth notes, sometimes 16th notes as well throughout the album. 
and the drums are just this flurry of energy um, as sort of an accent point. Um, and so I think that's really a struggle for anybody who tries to replicate it because you have to kind of step outside your comfort zone. As a guitarist, you have to be willing to stick to the beat and not really fluctuate or try anything. And as a drummer, all of a sudden, you're not in the, the driver's seat. You're just along for the ride with energy. And it's just, I've tried to play the drums to it and it's a struggle to keep up with Keith Moon's drummership. Is that in all their music? Yeah. Um, throughout most of their uh, album, most of their discography, outside of kind of their early days with things like I Can See for Miles or um, My Generation, they really developed this interesting aspect of music making because Pete Townshend wrote and composed pretty much all of their music. And so he had a very specific rhythm and driving goal that he had and their bassist, uh, John Entwistle, and the, the drummer would kind of just play along and just do whatever kind of as accenting to this backdrop. Now I want to ask you, what do you think of Tommy as a story? And that that's kind of, that's really broad. Yeah. <laughs> because I think you could listen to the album and get one story, see the movie and get another, and see a different production on stage and get a completely different one. I think that's cool. And I want to know, yeah, your opinion on it and like what representation of the story do you like? I think it's it's really easy to take it at face value of just being sort of a, a character arc. But at the end, you know, it doesn't end out in Tommy's favor. He's still being taken advantage of by his uncle. And, you know, this following he's accrued from being sort of this pinball wizard, as is one of the songs, um, even though he really didn't seem to have any sort of uh, sensory input, you know, he could still master this. And so they kind of had this sort of religion based around introspection and kind of ignoring your surroundings. But I think it, it's really more of a, a story about coming out of World War II um, and the silent generation. I think a lot of people were sick of being kind of in the role of children or seen, not heard. And so it kind of was their own internal awakening. And that was sort of the whole tumultuous decade of the 60s. All of a sudden, people were talking. They were having countercultural ideas. They were not listening to their elders, as had been the, the standard for several hundred years in Western society. All of a sudden, at the end of the 60s, the dream didn't come to fruition. You know, RFK was assassinated. Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. And all of a sudden, you know, you're in 1969 when the original album was released. And this big love and peace world just didn't come to fruition. It fell through. And so I think as we move into the 70s, you know, everything we'd been promised just didn't happen. That's a really cool perspective, especially because the story takes place over the course of like 20 years. Mm -hmm. It does, yeah. <laughs> or more. Yeah. <laughs> Which is actually unusual for a lot of stories. Yeah. And like I said, with the stage production, there's not really any sort of time demarcation throughout the album. You just kind of have to infer that. So, mm. you know, you can kind of just guess, you know, all of a sudden Tommy is not a four-year-old if he's able to lead a, <laughs> a cult, basically. <laughs> but you don't really know what the time frame is. Is he 40 years old? Is he 17? You can kind of pick mm -hmm. for yourself and you can kind of make your own connections with your own life and your own experiences. Mm-hmm. If you had to perform a song from Tommy, which would you choose? I really like playing the uh, overture on the guitar. I play it all the time. 
just because it's such a struggle to play with the ferocity that Pete Townshend did and to keep the guitar in tune. So whoever his guitar guitar tech was did a wonderful job of setting his guitar up. But it's just so fun to come through all these different movements and chord progressions that as a guitarist, you're not really used to thinking of it in that way. It's a very piano perspective towards songwriting and melodic movement. So I really like playing the overture into It's a Boy and into 1921. Mm. Yeah, I really like 1921. I like it a lot better on the album because I like uh, Roger Daltrey's voice better than the guy they had as uh, the his mom's new lover. Yeah. I just didn't really like his voice and they had him sing uh, 1921. I didn't like it as much. <laughs> I think 1921 is also, on the album at least, a very interesting point in Roger Daltrey's own personal development as a musician. Because when you listen through the earlier discography of The Who, he doesn't really have his own style of singing. It's very reserved. And so Pete Townshend singing kind of um, has always had the distinctive edge at the beginning. But all of a sudden in 1921, Roger Daltrey found this, this power and this perspective that he carried throughout the rest of their career. And you can kind of see that as a starting point for him. What do you think of the religious themes in Tommy? Again, I think it's kind of easy to look at it as a sort of critique of religion, as sort of leading people astray and not fulfilling promises. But I really think it's more about how, in a certain sense, religious the 60s were um, with the concepts mm -hmm. of peace and love. If you just are all in it, you know, we're going to have this utopia, nobody's going to struggle. And all of a sudden, you're having, you know, all these major players in the 60s counterculture, like Jimi Hendrix dying, um, Jim Morrison, um, you have the the Manson family murders and everything. And all this, all of a sudden, you're just like, whoa, this is not what I bargained for. And so I think it's just kind of a, a feeling of being let down is kind of how I view the religious aspects. I like your perspective. You're right. The 60s were religious, but not necessarily in the way that if you were just to say that, that people would think. Yeah. And it's interesting. Um, I really like Jesus Christ Superstar. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. That's probably my favorite rock opera. So I, I had seen that a lot. And then seeing Tommy for the first time, I, I actually had to look and and see when they were the movies were made. Mm -hmm. Jesus Christ Superstar, the movie came out a few years before Tommy, the movie. And I don't know, it seems like they, they borrowed some things from each other. Yeah. <laughs> and, but it, it was just interesting to me of how in the culture of the 60s and early 70s, it seemed like religious figures were a main topic, mm -hmm. um, at least in these rock opera stuff. Yeah which just seems odd to me because that that is definitely not the case now or if it is they're they're not necessarily treated with very much respect and i feel like in both tommy and jesus christ superstar it's not the sort of religion i go in for yeah. <laughs> but it is treated with respect which is interesting yeah i noticed that as well i think in the 60s since there was such a cultural change I guess people kind of of the in quotations working class were suddenly having the opportunity to go to college and sort of have access to the literature and art that the more wealthy people had kind of dominated for the last couple hundred years, especially in opera. You look back with um, 
people like Schubert or Mozart, they were the upper crust, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And now it was becoming the social norm for, you know, everyday Joe to kind of pick up a book and have understanding of concepts outside of his everyday life. And so I think that's really where that came from. They were kind of being more critical of what they believed and why. I think they were still fairly respectful of belief in something, but they were starting to become a little bit more self-aware rather than just being a part of the status quo. I'm going to ask a really goofy question. Do you play pinball? Uh, not really. Um, I think the most pinball I've ever played is on the, the free game that would come with Windows. <laughs> yes. That's about it. I think in real life, I've only played pinball once and I don't think I was that good at it, but I think it's really cool. Um, uh, kind of, that's not really a sport, but activity. Um, and it's a very yeah. free video game sort of a thing. Pinball Wizard was actually only included in the album because I think they were pitching the album to some, I guess, uh, label suit. And they were familiar that he really loved pinball. So they just wrote a song about pinball so that he'd like it better. That's funny. Yeah. I like that. And that's one of the, the Who's most famous songs. So I think it's kind of funny how songs that are kind of a joke or just kind of included just... <laughs> increase the probability that the album would be re released have become so famous you know very yes. a lot of people know this song even people who aren't familiar yes. with the album well what's funny is it kind of dates it yeah because pinball's not so much a thing anymore it, it actually made me a little sad watching the movie because at the end when tommy has his cult there's just pinball machines everywhere yeah. and i asked my dad i was like are those real? Because then they end up getting destroyed. Yeah. And to me, like, uh, I used to work in an arcade and I loved the pinball machines yeah. so much because there's so many different themes. There's like Star Wars pinball and Indiana Jones and, you know, Wild West. I don't know. There's something special about pinball machines. <laughs> yeah, I think it's really cool that each pinball machine, even if it was the same exact model, required knowledge of the machine and how it functioned so you did mm -hmm. have the local valley table valley was a um a pinball machine producer and they mentioned that in the song but you had the local legends the the kids that really were familiar with the ways that the different i guess bumpers and buzzers worked and you mm -hmm. don't really have that today you don't really have to be familiar with one particular mechanical model of a game you know, you can right. you can save um, on your computer if you're playing a game or anything like that. And it's every everybody has the same exact copy. I think it kind of reduced the amount of skill in a certain sense that it takes to be good at a particular thing. But I think that's just kind of an aspect of pinball itself. Yeah, there's kind of an organicness to yeah. it that's lost in modern gameplay. Yeah, I think we just kind of, you know, we, we moved into, to, into the Nintendo era. And, you know, there were certain ways that people could figure out to kind of cheese the game, I guess. But manufacturers and developers have really tried to minimize that. And I think we're kind of losing some distinctiveness because I, I think about the games that I played growing up. And there were always certain glitches or irregularities mm -hmm. that those get yes. patched out immediately or they're just never released with them anyway. They just they don't want any sort of weakness, I guess, in their original design. How do you think Tommy impacted music, uh, especially the blossoming rock opera genre? It kind of created it in a certain sense. And I think that took a lot of guts to 
do something that nobody had ever done before. Um, there had been efforts, like I, I mentioned before, to kind of have somewhat of a story or a orchestration with music. I know the Moody, Moody Blues released an album called Days of Futures Past, which is heavily orchestrated and has somewhat of a temporal lifespan sort of connection, but it's, it's not a story. There aren't really characters. Tommy is really like this first blossoming effort. The Who had tried earlier with a song called A Quick One While He's Away, and it's just seven minutes and it's very like modular where you just feel now we're in this section. Now we're in this section. Okay. The song's done and that's it. But Tommy is, you know, this is, you know, about an hour and a half of music. And that's, that takes a lot of guts to produce, to create a genre that would influence, you know, Green Day released sort of a, a rock opera, um, Pink Floyd, and a lot of other people have tried it. So I think that's really a really gutsy thing to do, but it, it worked out. How was it received when it first came out? It was very popular. And this was a, a really big turning point for The Who because as they were recording the album, they didn't really have a lot of backing from their label. So they had to play shows to have enough money to record it. And all of a sudden, whoa, they're selling a whole bunch of albums and it worked out. You know, they were they were a very popular band, but I don't know if you're familiar with the way that the Who shows worked, but there was a lot of smashing the guitars <laughs> and microphones yeah. and destroying things. You know, I think Keith Moon was banned from one of the hotels because he threw a, a car, you know, like drove a car into a into the um, the pool. And so like this is a very <laughs> destructive, you know, he would blow up the the toilets with cherry bombs and everything. And so this was not a very sustainable model, a very sustainable business model. But all of a sudden, no, they didn't have to play shows to pay for recording time. Mm. People were interested in seeing it and coming and seeing this spectacle, this story, something they'd never seen before. Was part of the destruction just uh, kind of to get noticed? I think from Pete Townshend's perspective, it was because, you know, uh, Jimi Hendrix and other people had like lit guitars on fire and smashed it. And it's sort of, you, that's not something you expect. I don't know, as growing up with musical instruments, you're always taught to handle them very gently. And all of a sudden somebody's smashing <laughs> a very expensive instrument onto the floor in front of you and blowing up a drum set or something. But I think for Keith Moon, he was his nickname was Moon the Loon, and he was very well known for being a wild man. And so I think he just liked it. But that it gets very expensive very quickly when you're having to buy what today would be, you know, two or three thousand dollar instruments multiple times a week. Yeah, musical instruments are not cheap. <laughs> if you were to write a rock opera, what would it be about? And what sort of sound would it have? I actually did write one um, when I was in high school. It was called Tangerine, and it was sort of a, a Western in a sense, and it takes place in this prairie town that's experiencing drought, and people are kind of asking both the, in quotations, good guys and the bad guys what they're going to do to help them get out of it. I actually wrote a song called uh, White Hat, Black Hat, and that's sort of a play on the, the trope of being able to tell who the good guys are by the, who's wearing what color hat. And I think as I did that, I realized how much pressure it is to undertake something like this all alone. And so I recorded about half of it, and I, but I never finished it. It was mostly just about, you know, the paths that people take and sometimes the, the path that's the easiest or seems the most obvious ends up hurting those around you. I like that. That's cool. Maybe that can come back someday, huh? Yeah, I, I really hope I can finish it. Um, it was also 
an experiment for me because I was recording it all on reel to reel tape, which is very expensive. And wow. if you make a mistake, you now have to erase several hundred feet of tape and that it gets really expensive and the tape just degrades and there's a lot of considerations for noise and, you know, you kind of you have to do it on the first take if you don't want to buy another $60 reel of tape. How long did you want it to be? And like your idea, like how many songs did you have planned, whether or not you finished them? Just how many did you plan for? I think I had about 20 individual songs. Um, but as I kind of retrospectively look back at it, I realized that a lot of them were sort of modular and just went straight into the next one. So it could almost be considered more of like nine or 10 distinct units with subdividing, <laughs> I guess, movements within them. I was kind of shooting for around an hour and a half. And I think I ended up recording about 30 or 40 minutes worth. That's still impressive. Yeah, it was one of the most, um, I guess, daring undertakings that I had ever gone for. Um, and the most successful I'd ever been in, I didn't even finish it. And so I think it's kind of interesting to see. I gained an understanding of why the Who dropped their next album, which was aptly named Who's Next. <laughs> it was it was originally supposed to be a another rock opera about finding like this internal defining harmony, like an internal note that everybody contains as part of like their spirit. But, you know, band interfighting and just the the struggle of trying to outdo them themselves just it collapsed mm. and so they released it as a traditional 14 song album which is a wonderful album but you just kind of think what could have been yeah making something long and cohesive that's a challenge i think that's so cool that you did your best at that like maybe you didn't finish it but i'm sure you gained a lot of insight that will help you whatever you decide to do next yeah i think i really learned how to quantify what I was trying to express, which has helped me in my own academic pursuits when I'm trying to, you know, ask for funding for a project, I can write down what I'm trying to do. It's not just some internalized idea. I can externalize cohesively what I'm trying to do. So I think it was really worthwhile and I hope to come back to it sometime. What sort of rock did you plan for it? Because I, I feel like there's a lot of different flavors I'm not really sure. The songs that I write, I've had several like fully recorded and completely finished and people will listen to it and they they kind of they're like I like it, but I don't know what to think and I don't know how to classify it. And so I guess it's just <laughs> sort of me rock and I think I'm I'm okay with that. You know, I've tried to write songs in the style of other people, but it always is sort of imitative like I'm imitating. And so it's mm. it's not me. Um and I you can only produce what you are. Really sincerely. Mm -hmm. I don't know how I'd define it. Maybe someday you can get back to it. Yeah. I'd, that would be I'd cool. really like to. I, um, right before Christmas, I tried to record some more, but in the meantime, something in my reel-to-reel uh, -reel tape machine stopped working, so I couldn't record. I got everything all set up, and I had my tape ready to go, oh. and I went to record, and it just wouldn't go. I'm not entirely sure what's broken oh. on it, but... Uh, oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> I also find it admirable and interesting that you're recording reel to reel because it with technology these days it's so easy you could I mean it wouldn't be super great but you could record it on your phone yeah I feel like that says a lot about who you are that you've chosen to record that way and I think it's cool yeah 
I think a lot of people who are coming into the music scene now are actually coming from a similar perspective with their phones. You know, they're buying some kind of audio interface to their phone or to their, you know, $400 laptop. And so they're producing something that's very distinctively them. I think in film, there's the concept of the auteur film or, mm -hmm. and so it's like whoever's producing it is, has their hand in every single aspect. So it's a, their own essence in art form. How many instruments do you play? It depends on what you consider to be playing. <laughs> <laughs> we'll go with a very loose definition. <laughs> I'd say what I would consider myself, like if somebody said, here, can you play this? I could play um, the guitar, the bass, and the drums. And I can kind of play the piano, but not, not to the degree that most other people can. I use it mostly as a, a composing tool. But mm. in my own musical pursuits i've played the trumpet i've played the flute pretty much anything as long as i can sort of figure out what the pattern is and i think that's a lot easier if you've spent any time with the piano because it's very obvious what the pattern is i think i can kind of play most anything that somebody sets in front of me oh well, that helps a lot when you're composing because then you know I, I think it's good to have a lot of experience for playing different instruments because that gives you it's like more colors to work with yeah and each instrument is designed in its own special way. And so music that makes sense on a guitar, you're never going to get to that on a piano because they're just laid out differently. Their relationship with the different notes and the different positions are just very different. And I really like that. And I think that's something that we kind of miss in a world where everything is produced in the box with Ableton mm -hmm. or any sort of other electronic music software is that people are mm -hmm. playing with basically what's a piano. And so you you hear the piano, you don't hear the violin, the trumpet, the clarinet or whatever. Well, thank you for sharing about your own musical pursuits. Yeah, for sure. I appreciate that. Do you have any other thoughts on Tommy? I think it's very special because even though it may not be musically or I guess from a storytelling perspective, perfect, I've always sort of felt that it ends really abruptly. We have this huge buildup throughout the entire album and all of a sudden in three songs we're done and you're like, whoa, what just happened? Mm, mm -hmm. But I think that speaks to the time. Like I said before, the 60s were a huge decade and I think for a lot of people, it kind of felt like the 60s would never end. But all of a sudden, here we are in 1969, Woodstock's over, rock stars are dying, cultural figures are dying or being assassinated and all of a sudden, whoa, this is it. I really like your perspective. Thank you. Yeah. I, I like that of, you know, I, I listen to it. I watch the movie. I like the music, mm -hmm. but it's, it's just taken from a, a story point of view. It's kind of weird. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so I like your perspective of this isn't necessarily like an individual person's story. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like a generation story, the story of the 60. I really like that. That gives me like a framework to think more about Tommy. And I think it's very relatable. I think multi-generation because the post-World War II kids, you know, people who were in their 20s and 30s in the 50s had been promised something in the post-World War II. And what they were left with is the Cold War and, mm -hmm. you know, nuclear bomb drills. And I think we sort of come today with our own, you know, school shooting drills and cultural and environmental unrest. And we think we're the first generation to experience this. 
And I think Tommy really mm-hmm. is showing like, nope, this is this is nothing new. Every generation or every couple generations, some sort of tumultuous period happens. And it's, it's encouraging because we'll get through it. Um, it may not turn out the way we want, but time goes on and you can't really fight that. It gives perspective mm-hmm. to our lives because we're experiencing it for the first time. So I think we forget other people have already experienced it. Yeah, it's so easy. <laughs> And, you know, I think a lot of people think that we as a society today are very egocentric, but everybody is egocentric. They always have been. And so it's easy to think this experience that I'm having right now, nobody else has ever had. And that's just not the case. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you for that perspective. Yeah. Do you have anything you would like to recommend today? I think that Tommy actually leads really well into two albums by Pink Floyd, one of which is The Wall. And the other is the final cut. And both of them, the final cut to a lesser degree, are rock operas. And they're very much more thematically cohesive. It's a very distinctive story that you can follow. But it really moves into this idea that the utopia after World War II isn't there. And that we're kind of just getting caught into the same the same pratfalls that our parents did in World War I, the Great Depression, and World War II. I think that's really interesting. I like talking music with you because it's like a history lesson as well. It makes it come alive to me. I I like that. Yeah, I'm glad. Um, I think a lot of people, when I talk about my analysis of music, kind of look at me and they're like, I just listen because I think it's fun. But I (laughs) I think any piece of art is a piece of the time that it came from. But it's also a piece of the collective unconscious as, you know, Jung mentioned in his own psychological perspectives, which, you know, there's some speculation and doubt as to whether or not that's true. But I think we can kind of take things and understand that they apply to us today. Yes. Well, the there's human experiences that we can connect with mm-hmm. in different times. With art, I think there's there are things for the individual and the collective in historical ton- context and for us today as well. I think that's the beauty of art. Mm-hmm. I also recommend um, a song called Der Elkönig, um, which comes out of the 1800s. It was written by a, a German poet and scientist um, named Goethe and put to music by Schubert. And I'm fascinated how it sort of connects with Tommy because it's this cohesive story that even if you can't speak German, I remember the first time I heard this song, I couldn't speak German at the time. You have this implicit understanding of what's happening and there's connections across time across culture and so i think it's really interesting how we can share this experience even across language through music through art you know we can understand a little bit of what somebody's perspective is through what they write and um since i'm not sure how many of our listeners know how to spell german words maybe we can get a link to that piece and put it in the description so people can find it. Yeah, for sure. There's um, a lot of different versions of that song that have been recorded, obviously, because when it first came out, it was premiered in an opera. And there was no such thing as recording at the time. And so the idea was for many different people to be able to experience it and to portray it in their own interpretation. But there is one version that I found on YouTube that has uh, English lyrics Um, annotated into it and it's very beautifully animated so even if you choose not to have the English lyrics on you can see this story animated and you can really see what's happening we're definitely getting that link (laughs) (laughs) 
Thank you, James, for sharing the history and yeah. the philosophy and just the music that you like. Yeah, for sure. I had a lot of fun. I hope other people find it as intriguing and captivating as I did. Well, thank you for sharing. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to The Patchwork Girl and Friends. You can help make the show better by supporting me on Patreon. My Patreon supporters get access to cool benefits like early access to commercial-free episodes and behind-the-scenes features. Just look for Patchwork Girl Productions on Patreon.com. Next time on The Patchwork Girl and Friends. The screenshot that comes up is really odd-looking. It's like this rainbow, a couple of the main characters in the movie, and it just looks really, like, cheesy. (laughs) Oh, hello, Sean Connery. What are you doing in this Irish movie? There's obviously like a witty banter in between um, King Brian and Darby. But there's actually kind of a banter going around Mm. with everybody who interacts with Darby. (laughs) I like stories like that where there's a lot of tricks and different ways of thinking about things and having to be clever to get out of situations.